0: If you would open your Bibles this morning to John chapter 2, John chapter 2, for one final sermon in this chapter, before we continue moving on, we're looking just simply verses 23 through 25 this morning, just these three verses, we read this account now, when he, meaning Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them. For he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Father, again, help us please by your spirit, cause us to mind deep truths from your word. Truths that are undiscernible apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. We know that no man can discern and to see into your word because we are carnal and fleshly and your word is spiritual and it is only by your spirit's work that the word of God can be rightly, accurately opened before us. And so we pray, Father, that your spirit, holy, pure, undefiled, powerful and sovereign, would do His work in us this morning by revealing the God of the Word in the Word, that we might be changed by it. We pray all of this in Jesus' precious name, Amen. There's a hymn that is familiar to most of you, I think, written by Norman J. Clayton back in 1945. The hymn title is, My Hope is in the Lord. And there's a particular phrase, a particular portion of that hymn that I want you to think about with me as we start this morning. It comes in the third verse, and I think it captures a beautiful and critical component of our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. He writes of Jesus. He shows his wounded hands and names me. As his own. He shows his wounded hands. And names me. As his own. Allow that to sink in. Christian. Jesus. Is standing before his father. Even now. And he stretches out his hands with those. Those nail prints. Jesus is not an ethereal figment of imagination. Remember, he is a risen body this morning. And he's standing before his father. And he shows his wounded hands as proof of his acceptable sacrifice. That he has been accepted by his father. He is reminding the father, you have accepted what I have offered. And these are the ones for whom I have offered it. He shows his wounded hands and claims us as his own. We are accepted by the Father because of the Son's proclamation: mine, mine, mine. We will never, brothers and sisters, stand before the father and say, we belong to you because we believed this or we did this or whatever it may be. We ultimately stand before the father, accepted by him because he says, you're mine. He shows his wounded hands and claims us as his own. Jesus claims you. If you are a follower of Jesus, born again by His Spirit from above, He says you are His. What a beautiful and moving scene. In fact, I would submit, in all of history, eternally speaking, in all of the world, in all the things that we could imagine, there is not a more gripping and beautiful scene than Jesus standing before the Father and naming sinners as His own. You want to talk about what is our hope in life and death? That is our hope in life and death. That Jesus shows His wounded hands and claims us as His own. In our text this morning, we find and are confronted by the importance of Of that clause. And I don't remember how it's listed in the bulletin. Let me look. Yes, it's listed correctly there. I often change sermon titles. So poor Corey has to keep up with my ADD mind. But here's the sermon title. Does Jesus believe you? We could say, does Jesus believe in you? Does Jesus stand and plead before the Father for you. In the text this morning, we are confronted by the importance of that reality. The importance of being claimed by Jesus. So often, don't we, we ask in Christianity today, do you believe in Jesus? No, that's an important question. It's a fundamental question. It's a critical question. It, it, it is, it's non-negotiable in our salvation But do we ever ask this question? Does Jesus believe in you? Oh, I know Jesus. That's all well and fine. But does Jesus know you? You see, Jesus is confronted by reality that there are many people in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover That are claiming to believe in him and yet he distances himself from them because he doesn't believe in them. He doesn't believe what they're saying. He doesn't believe what it is that they're believing. He doesn't believe what it is in their heart regardless of what they claim. Well, that's a hard truth. Why would I ever ask such a question such as does Jesus believe in you? And again, it may sound overly harsh to our ears that have been trained to place the emphasis and the accent and the stress on the syllable of mankind and how we respond to Jesus, but have never given much, if any thought, to how Jesus views us. It doesn't matter what you claim, it's what he claims. We'll never go before the Father and say, Father, I claim Jesus, let me in. It will only be by the Son saying, I claim them, therefore they are in. Perhaps we haven't really considered the dilemma, because this, while commentators and scholars will call verses 23 through 25 in chapter 2, they call it a linkage passage. It's a short passage that links one major portion of John's gospel to the next. And the next is obviously Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus about what the new birth is. And so between the cleansing of the temple, which, wow, how do you go from the cleansing of the temple to the new birth with Nicodemus? Well, you go through this linkage passage, if you will, that was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And even though it is seen as a transition... To some, it is absolutely dripping with important salvific truth. I ask the question because Jesus imposes the question on us. It's not me saying this. This is inspired scripture. It is inspired Holy Writ. And it's not the only time, brothers and sisters, that this issue has come up. I want you to. Go back with me in your mind to uh, perhaps one of the, the most famous sermons in the history of the world. The Sermon on the Mount. Now, everybody loves the Sermon on the Mount up to a point. In fact, you can even get the world to love the first part of that sermon with you. The Beatitudes, right? I mean, I've seen them in secular places on the wall. I'm sure Hobby Lobby's got signs with it on there today. And and all kinds of people will buy that and they'll go along with it. And oh, this is beautiful and wonderful. But you know how the Sermon on the Mount ends? Same sermon. Same setting. And if you read the sermon, it doesn't take you very long. Jesus quickly moves through this sermon. And here's how he ends it. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not... Everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my father, who is in heaven, will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Did you hear that? There are people performing miracles, exorcisms even. And they're saying we're doing it in the name of the Lord, but notice Jesus' response to them. I will declare to them on that day, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I never knew you. So isn't it then important to ask the question, not only do you know Jesus, but does Jesus know you? Because there's coming a day where people will stand before him, according to Jesus' own words, in that wonderful sermon on the mount, and they'll say to him, Lord, Lord, we're yours. Look at what we've done. And he's going to say, depart from me, you who work lawlessness. I don't know you. But we know you. That's not the point whether or not I know you. There's another example of this in John's revelation of Jesus Christ, the book of Revelation. And there are churches that are busy. They've got the sign out. They've got the the programs rolling. They've got all kinds of things that the world would drive by and go, no, that's a church. And Jesus says... To that church, unless you repent of your busyness and yet your barrenness, I'm going to take away your status as a true church. Doesn't matter what you say you are, doesn't matter what the world says you are. It only matters what I say you are. You are busy, but you are barren. And so it is not merely that we. Claim Jesus, but that Jesus claims us in our text this morning raises, I think, well, that question for us so that not not that, that, that we can be beaten down by it so that we can graciously be challenged by it. And as Paul would write, as Peter would write to examine our own lives. Self-evaluation, that's something that doesn't exist much anymore, Now I'm not for introspective navel gazing you understand but there are proper ways in which we need to examine our own lives and examine our spiritual standing before the father and say where is my assurance where does my comfort come from where uh, where do i base the hope of eternal life and salvation where is that coming from from what i say or from what christ says and so two questions this morning in order to help us find the answer to that self-evaluation. And these, the answers to these two questions will either lead us to salvation. If you've never known Christ as Savior. Or it will lead you to assurance of Christ. If you do know Jesus as your Savior. It will either lead you to salvation or to assurance. One of the two. And may I say there's no bad answer in that. You'll either be saved or you will be assured in that reality that you already have been saved. As we look at this text and take it apart. And so question number one. What is the nature of counterfeit faith? What is the nature of counterfeit faith? And again, I've said it before. Let me say it again. Faith has become such an unhelpful and and nebulous term in our culture, hasn't it? well, a person of faith, and I have faith in this. And and faith really doesn't mean anything anymore. In fact, uh, we're gearing up, right? The news cycles are telling us we're gearing up for an election in November, and faith is going to be associated with what? Your political leanings. Faith's going to be associated with this, that, or the other. But, But what the Bible teaches about faith is altogether different than that. All faith is not equal. Did I just say that? All faith is not equal. And all faith, even though it names the name of Jesus Christ, is not saving faith. What are you here for this morning? Just simply the religious activity of nebulous faith or the assurance of saving faith. Which is it? If we're here for the certainty and the assurance of what is saving faith, this passage won't offend us. This passage will encourage us. Even as we do the hard consideration about what it is that John is writing for us this morning. Jesus is in Jerusalem for the Passover feast. Remember, he just cleansed the temple. He's clearly working miracles, even though we don't know what they are. But that don't let that bother you, because remember what John says at the end. If I wrote everything that he did, the world is not large enough to contain all the volumes that, that would be necessary to hold that information, Right? And so Jesus has obviously been doing things while he is there in Jerusalem, like cleansing the temple, like other miracles, demonstrating signs and wonders that prove that the Messiah has come. And his name is Jesus of Nazareth. And so we find a group of people who are present with him. And notice what the text says. While he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name. Notice the qualifying phrase here. Observing his signs, which he was doing. These people are looking. They're seeing Jesus do things. They're signing up, if you will. uh, To put it in Baptist parlance, they're coming forward at the altar call. They're doing everything necessary that would tell you from the outside that they have become followers of Jesus as they have observed the signs and wonders that Jesus is doing. And let me tell you, modern evangelicalism is quick to go, whoa, look how many followers we got today. We're raking them in, Jesus. Keep the miracles going. Look at the crowd. Look at the numbers. This is epic. To use kids' parlance today. Rejoicing in the tally. Rejoicing in the number. And then just moving on. What's next? Well, I know it's that we've got to build a bigger building. Man, we've got to get, got to get things to keep it going. And Jesus... Don't stop whatever you do. People are believing as they're observing. And yet, here in the midst of this joyous occasion, this apparent massive crusade movement that Jesus is building that would make even Billy Graham jealous, right? I mean, this is early crusade style stuff. Masses are following Jesus. But there's something that ought to grab our attention. That Jesus is doing signs, that's clear, that's not debatable. The people were believing, that's clear, that's not debatable. But it's something about their belief in relation to the signs being performed that is troubling. In the English, it's not quite as clear because our language is not quite as specific as the language with which John wrote in the New Testament. But the verb rendered in English, he was doing, here in verse 23, his signs, which he was doing, is written in such a way that it's it's really unique and when you find it, it, it should grab your attention. It is written in what the Greeks would call an imperfect tense of the verb. In other words, it kept having to happen. It kept having to go. And so the people are believing. And as one commentator translated this very woodenly and very literally, it is translated this way, observing the signs which he kept doing Which meant that as long as he was doing them, the people were believing. But the minute he stopped, guess what else stopped? The believing. The grammatical relationship is between the apparent belief and the signs. That's the point. Very clear in John's original writing. Their faith, brothers and sisters, was contingent upon signs. Let me ask you a question. What do you believe in? Does Jesus have to do something for you to believe? Do your emotions have to be at a certain level for belief and faith to be validated? Does your experience have to rise to a certain expectation that you've said or others have said in order for your salvation to be legitimate? So doesn't this raise the question, what is the nature of counterfeit faith? I think it should. R.H. Lightfoot, one commentator of years gone by, said this only a first attraction to the Lord and yet and does not yet know him. Speaking of them, he says, theirs is only a first attraction to the Lord and does not yet know him as the son of man, still less as the unique son of God and is therefore imperfect and liable to be overthrown. That's how he describes these people's faith. Very superficial. Another commentator takes it further by saying that not only was their faith unsure, unsteady, but highly suspect and as it appears to exist. Here's how he translates it. So long as they were beholding the works, they were believing. So long as they felt a certain thing, they were believing. So long as they could remember an experience, they were believing. Does that resonate? It, boy, it did with me. It resonated deeply with me because how much counseling and pastoral care in our day, I think especially in our culture, is wrapped up in people lacking assurance, perhaps even lacking salvation, because they are believing in the signs, in the emotions, in the experience. And not as Lightfoot says, the unique son of God. Where is your assurance of salvation? Is it rooted in an act, a sign, a feeling, or is it in Christ? In order to be clear, they were people of faith, not questioning that. But their faith was contingent upon signs to keep coming. And I know it's low-hanging fruit, and I know it's kind of like the so obvious example in front of us that it probably shouldn't have to be mentioned, but just let me illustrate by it. That's the problem with the American gospel, the prosperity gospel. That says God really came and he really works all these signs and wonders to make you comfortable, to make your life happy, to make your life easy, and then what happens when life gets hard? Well, I guess Jesus lied, didn't he? I guess he really can't save. And, and And we set people up for failure with that. If you tell anybody, hey, if you come to Christ, your life's going to be easy, you just lied through your teeth to them. I remember a number of years ago, my dad was working on a, a drilling rig and the crew was a great crew anytime he could call out this particular crew down in San Angelo he'd call them because they just did such great work and they were good men and he developed a, a real burden for their salvation there was only one small problem he didn't speak Spanish and they didn't speak English and so he called out a friend of ours who was fluent in Spanish and he said hey can you help me present the gospel to these men and so a friend of ours came out and dad said, man, he said, I didn't know what I was calling for. He said, he just preached a sermon right there on the location to these guys. And he said, man, they, their heads just dropped and we've never heard this before. And man, what? And they were just burdened by their sin and yet came, ended up coming to Christ. And my dad saw them a few years later and the guy ran up to him, gave him a hug, and said, thank you, you know, for. For caring enough. He said, but I want to tell you something. He said, my life got a lot worse. He said, I never fought with my wife like we fight now. He's like, because when Jesus came and I was a believer and she wasn't a believer, guess what happened? Conflict. Eventually his whole family came to Christ and loved the Lord and just a wonderful testament. But if you tell people, hey, listen, if you'll accept Jesus, life's going to get really good for you. It may get really hard for you. It may be harder than you ever imagined. And so so where is our faith? Is it in the sign? Is it in the ease that we've been promised? Or is it in Jesus? And so let's ask the question. These people are believing, but they're obviously believing in the signs, really not in the sign. Maker or doer. So let's ask the question what is the definition of genuine faith? What is it? I think we find the answer in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. And with, listen to the location, will you, of faith? And without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that. He is, and that He is the rewarder of those who seek Him. How different does that sound than what's going on in John chapter 2? Greatly different. They are seeking signs. They are putting their faith in signs. They are not coming to God. They are coming to a man who does Miracles. Now let me remind you what Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 7. There are other people who also do what? Signs and wonders. It's very dangerous then to predicate our faith upon signs and wonders as opposed to a person. Saving faith, according to Hebrews, in this great chapter about faith... Notice how many times in verse 6 we read these pronouns him, God, he, he, him. That's in one verse. Could it be any more clear? Saving faith is rooted in him, counterfeit faith is rooted in anything else. And, you know, it's kind of like you're trained in preaching. Don't get in the bad habit of trying to list everybody's sins. You can't. There's too many of them. <laughs> There's too many combinations. There's, you're going to miss something, right? So don't, don't get in the bad habit of, you no, know, sometimes if the text, you've got to deal with certain things. But as a whole, as a preacher, I can't get up here every Sunday and list every possible sin. Not even remotely possible. So what do I have to do? I have to focus on what's true and the one who is true. And so it is either Christ or everything else. These people in John chapter 2 appear to be going with the everything else option. Notice Abraham, who's so often given as the example of faith. In Genesis 15, 6, Abraham, he's been called out three chapters earlier, doesn't know who Yahweh is. Doesn't know who God is. Doesn't much care at that point. But God calls him out into a land that isn't his. To follow a God who isn't his. To to go to place. I mean this is. Can you imagine? And notice what we read about Abraham three chapters later. Genesis 15, 6. Then he believed in the Lord. Abraham hadn't had a son yet. Abraham hadn't seen the great nation yet. Abraham had not seen how God would deliver his people over and over again yet. Abraham didn't see any of this. And yet, what did Abraham do? Believed in the Lord. Not the signs, not the promises, but the one who makes the promises. Does that makes sense? So in John chapter 2, it's not believing in the signs that these people should be Relying on, it's believing in the one who works the signs. That's the one-to-one correlation with Abraham. Abraham didn't believe the promises. He believed the one who made the promises. Big difference. And he looks to him and the Bible goes on and says, And it was reckoned or credited to him as righteousness. Let's ask the question, will these signs save here in John 2? Will these signs that they're beholding, will they save the needy sinner? Can signs save you? No. Will it meet their felt needs? Probably. Will it serve to amuse their curiosity? Well, it's doing that, obviously. But a Savior. Not signs is what is needed for our salvation. And let's, brothers and sisters, be careful that we don't fall into the trap of looking for the signs. Don't confuse the two. Like a caring pharmacist who carefully Triple checks and then checks his work again so that he is sure that the patient receives the proper medication. John wants you to see and thus examine over and over again. Look at it. Make sure. Make sure that your own claims about faith are correct in the genuine article because they are rooted in the Savior, not the sign. They're not merely a spiritual placebo. Your faith is not a placebo. But your faith actually is the efficacious, powerful Savior Himself who is ready, willing, and able to save you from sin. Look to Him. Not anything else. As we worship God, as we pray, we are always drawn in Scripture first to worship. And to give thanks for who God is, and then to praise Him for what He's done. Has that ever dawned on you in the prayers of Scripture? They're not looking for the signs of all that God has done. Who are they praising first? God Himself. Jesus, when He teaches the disciples to pray, how does He start? Our Father. Who art in heaven, hallowed, holy, sacred, set apart and majestic. Be your name. And then he goes on and he recites the qualities and the attributes and the character of God. And then as we get further down, he says, and give us this day our daily bread. The signs come later. The proof comes later. The praise is in the one who is worthy of the praise. Our faith ought to be the same way. Rooted in Christ. Not rooted in anything else. What does it communicate if... You may know somebody like this. I almost hesitate to use the illustration, but I think it's helpful. Because it may cause some of you to go, yep, mm-hmm. And I don't want you to have that person in your thought for the rest of the sermon, okay? But what does it communicate about earthly relationships if the only time someone shows up is when they get something? Do you really feel like they love you? Or they just love what you can do for them? They just love what they get, right? Right? Is it not the same for Jesus? These people just love me for my signs. They just love me for what I'm doing. That's not a relationship. That's abuse. That's using somebody. Faith that relies on the external and the temporary demonstrations is no faith at all. And as soon as the the source is, is stopped or it ceases to be to their liking, so will their faith stop. And they'll be damaged. These are. Talk about Mormons. You can talk about Jehovah's Witness. You can talk about Roman Catholics. You can talk about Muslims. You can talk about all that and say, man, they're so hard to win to Christ. I'll tell you who's harder. People who say this and I've heard it. Yeah, I tried that once. But I don't believe anymore. Why? You know what? My wife left me anyway. I lost my job anyway. My health failed anyway. I thought Jesus cared. Well, then you came to Jesus for the wrong reason. You came for a sign, not for a savior. These people are the most damaged and hardest to reach. Because they think they had the genuine article and they never really did. And you've got to first convince them that they didn't really have faith, at least saving faith. All they had was a lust for results. It's like saying, try Jesus for 30 days and if you don't find Him to your liking, send Him back. If He doesn't satisfy all your desires. Oh, we would never be so uncouth as to say that, but that's the reality of these people in John 2. But Jesus is not a slave to our desires. He became a slave to our sin in order to bear it away and to bury it in the deepest of seas and as far as the east is from the west. He's a sovereign savior for sin. And by the way, their carnal desire for manifestation in signs is proof that they're sinners. And their biggest problem is not that they didn't get a sign. Their biggest problem is that they're a sin and that's proving it. This is, again, such a short but important segue. Let me move quickly to the second question. What is Jesus' response to counterfeit faith? Well, i me just point out a couple of things to you here. But Jesus, verse 24, on his part, was not entrusting himself. It's the same exact word that we get believing from in verse 23. They had believed on his name. Jesus, entrusting, is the same word for believe here. I don't know why the translators chose to use a different English rendering, maybe to soften the blow a little bit. But it is the same word. We could read it this, way. Jesus on his part was not believing himself to them. He's just not doing it. And by the way, to match... What was previously said in verse 23, he uses the imperfect verb here again. In other words, Jesus kept on not believing them. Just to match it. So it's a one-to-one correlation. What is Jesus' response to counterfeit faith? He doesn't believe you. The same word a people's attempt to faith is the same word Jesus uses against them in their condemnation. It's a wordplay, meant to contrast and emphasize. They believed in Jesus, air quotes, but Jesus did not believe in them. Why is this so? How could Jesus do this? You see, we would look at that today and say, "Uh-uh, don't you judge." Yeah, but don't forget who Jesus is. He's the omniscient God of heaven. He knows everything. He knows men's hearts. He knows what's in your thoughts. He knows before you know. He knows you better than you know yourself. And he says, this isn't genuine faith. Guys, I hate to break it to you, but this isn't saving faith. Was Jesus happy about that? Was Jesus angry about that? Not at all, because... Just a few chapters later, you know where we find Jesus? Up on top of a mountain, looking out over the whole city and weeping. Because this is the kind of faith they had. He's not happy about it. He's broken over it. We look at this well, that's kind of tacky and rude of Jesus. No, he's broken. And I don't say this in glee or gladness either. We ought to be broken that they're Satan has sold the church today counterfeit faith that is going to damn millions. If Jesus doesn't step into the scene and reverse course for them, just like he does here. D.A. Carson says it this way, unlike other religious leaders, Jesus cannot be duped by flattery, enticed by praise or caught off guard in innocence. His knowledge of men's hearts is profound. And it accounts in part for the diversity of his approaches to individuals throughout the Gospels. And isn't that true? You have these people here. These, I think we could safely categorize them as perhaps swept up into religious fervor at a time like the Passover. During Passover week, think about going to, you know, like maybe you went to youth camp or something in, in high school at a place where it really played on the emotions and everybody comes up home and they're waving their Jesus banners and 2 weeks later you can't find him anywhere. We've all seen it happen. Could be that. But notice just the next chapter, here's Nicodemus. And Jesus doesn't look at Nicodemus and say Nicodemus, look at me. You're phony. You're a fraud. No, what does he do? He sits down and says, Nicodemus, we need to talk. To the woman at the well in John chapter 4, an adulteress, at best, engaged in serial, serial monogamy. I mean, just unfaithful. Our society would, an immoral person, just out with you. And Jesus says, I know where this woman's going to be at what time of day she's going to be there. We're going to go have a conversation. And what does Jesus do? What what is her record of Jesus? She runs back to her village that knew her as a woman of ill repute. And she said, come see a man who told me everything that I've ever done. She wasn't looking for signs and wonders. She had found the Savior, the omniscient Savior, who knew everything about her. And because she believed he was the Savior, she wasn't ashamed for him to know everything that she had done. Hey, if you're taking your burdens to Jesus and you believe that he really is a righteous savior, there's no shame. Why? Because he not only knows, he forgives. And so you see how Jesus deals differently. These people are swept up into just pure religious emotionalism at a time. Jesus deals with them one way. He says, hey, I'm not falling for it. But to those who were truly seeking Jesus has compassion. Jesus meets with them. Jesus stays with them. Until Jesus finally dies for them. Jesus rejects their counterfeit faith because it's not faith at all. And brothers and sisters, let me just say that apart from God's grace, our faith is just as counterfeit. Never forget what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that, the faith, is not of yourselves. Even the faith that you have in Jesus is a gift of God. Why? So that no man will boast. Signs didn't do this. I didn't do this. The preacher didn't do this for me. God did this for me. That is the nature of saving faith. One commentator points out that at the end of John, think about this, there was no one left who was a real believer at the cross. If their actions tell you anything, they were all in hiding. John was there, but he was at a distance. This commentator goes on to say, I don't, he says, I believe that their faith became genuine after the resurrection. Because all men left. They all fled from him. But they came back to him. Because their faith was in him. The word of God himself. Eternal, incarnate, sinless, sacrificial, victorious. Brothers and sisters, dear friends. This is what we are called to as well. A view to the son of God for who he is. This is faith that Jesus recognizes, not faith that comes when we get what we want. Aren't you glad the Lord doesn't give you everything you want? I I know for a fact that we can all point back to our life and say there were times when I say, God, give me this. God, I need this. God, this is just the best plan for me. I have to have this. I need this. And the heavens open and they were brass and God says, no. I don't understand that. And then later we realize, Lord, thank you for saying no. Thank you for saying no. Thank you for closing the door. Thank you for pointing me to you. Leon Morris says he looked for genuine conversion, not enthusiasm for the spectacular. Hey, who? Who he is? Right, Hebrews eleven six. For he that comes to God must come believing that he is nothing more. Not what he does. Not what he can offer. Not how he can make your life a better life. Can I say it this way? Not even for eternal life. Do you want to go to heaven? If that's the way you evangelize, guess how many you'll win to Christ. Everybody. And eternal life is certainly the joyous fruit that Jesus brings. But the real issue is, do you want resolution for your sin? Do you want to be reconciled to the Father? Do you want to be right with God? Do you want guilt taken away? Come to Jesus. I mean, we can sell Jesus a million different ways. And we can get just about everybody to follow Jesus if you pitch it a certain way. If you're a good enough salesman. But Jesus is uninspired. He is unmoved by those sorts of things. He wants people who believe Him for who He is. And in believing that, there is great freedom. There is, is eternal life. There is those things, But we must never start there. I'm going to start by who he is. Jesus never believed in them. Verse 25, And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Again, it's written, the imperfect verb is used in verse 25 as well to communicate the ongoing nature of this. Jesus will never accept counterfeit faith. No matter how sincere it was in its pursuits, Jesus doesn't recognize that it's foreign. It's not complicated. It's not a complex message. It's simply a diagnostic checkup. What is in your faith? Is it Jesus? Or something else? Religion? What you can get out of it? Or like Abraham, do you just simply believe God? Because He's God. And know that whatever He works will be worked for good. Worked for His glory. Worked for your eternal joy. Just because of who He is. If your faith is that of their variety in verse 23, I call you to repent and turn to Christ. And to Christ alone. Not for what you can get, but for who He is. And for what He offers, the real need that you have, your sins being forgiven. And if your faith is of the variety that I... With the hymn writer, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. I wholly lean on Jesus' name. For who He is. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. Not on Christ's signs. Not on Christ's provisions. Not on how I feel about Christ. Not about an experience. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground. All other ground. Is sinking sand. May it be. May it be that our faith is in him. John 10:14, "I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep, the ones that I know. Father. We pray and we believe that we will be known by Your Son when we cast away all other attempts at coming to You. When we cast away all other reasons For coming to you. Save Christ. Being made right with you. Through him alone. All other reasons fail. The test. Of what biblical. Saving faith is. And We pray father. That as we examine our own hearts. And our own minds. And we ask this difficult question. Does Jesus know me? Does Jesus believe me? We pray, Father, that those who truly are bought by the blood of Jesus. Who have been known by him and therefore in response do know him. We pray, Father, that you would comfort them with the sweet assurance of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we know that's why you're here. You're a comforter. You're a guide to point us to all that Jesus said, all that Jesus is. And to seal us for that final day. Holy Spirit, comfort those who are yours. Comfort those who belong to the Savior. Magnify Jesus in their minds so that their faith is rooted even more today. Because they've seen more of their Savior today in Him. And Holy Spirit, we graciously, or we, I should say, we ask that You would graciously, if You cannot assure someone that they are Christ's, convince them that they are not Christ's. That they might come to Christ. We pray, Holy Spirit, You would not allow anyone to sit here this morning in self-delusion. Lest they leave this place Separated from the Father and the Son and the Spirit by their sin. Assure them that they aren't Christ's, but they can be. Cause them to turn and to run to Christ and know that those who call upon the name of the Lord, not His acts, not what He can do for them, not how it feels to them, but those who call upon the name of the Lord will be. Saved by that Lord. We pray that if there is one who is self-deceived and confused and deluded. Oh Holy Spirit have that sweet ministry to them. Of bringing them to the Son. Grant them faith to believe. Now Lord be with us as we observe your table. May it be a time of sweet communion with you. For those who believe. We pray this all in Jesus name. Amen.